Jesus, here we are again. Different roads and different paths that bring us to a place that's been set aside to hear from you. And then for us to raise our voices and our hearts back to you. While this isn't about the experience we have, we want to know the reality of your presence here. That looks and sounds different for each one of us. But Lord, help us to be conformed to the image, to your image. By the teaching of your word, by the direction of your spirit, by the care of your people. May we see you above all else. Even here in this book. We pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen. So I'm going to invite you to turn uh, probably to your table of contents first to find the book of Esther. Esther is uh, probably the most misunderstood book of the Old Testament. And the reason for that, well, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. Esther's an odd book. Um, it's one of the last books of the Bible written, uh, books of the Old Testament that was written. Um, it's one of the one of two books um, that has no direct mention of God, um, but it is the only one that does not have any even implied, like the presence of God isn't even implied. There's not even a mention of the idea of of the God of Israel in the book of Esther. It's one of two books named after a woman, um, the other being Ruth. And as a result, it is uh, one of the books that the Jew, Jewish rabbis had a real hard time with including in the scriptures. Um, it's got a confusing context, and so as a result, uh, a lot of people just use it as a nice little moral tale, a nice little story that we can tell. Um, in the Jewish observance of when Esther is read, the festival of Purim, um, when Esther is read, um, the kids participate by making sound effects to keep it interesting. Now, we're not going to do that. <laughs> we have more than enough sound effects on our own. Um, but uh, but we, we do want to get into this book, and I want to talk, uh, give a quick introduction to it, and then we're... We're going to dive right into it. Uh, the book of Esther comes from uh, the Achaemenid Persian period. I know you're all very excited about that word. Um, but the, the Persian period begins around uh, 520 B.C. when the, the army of the Medes and the Persians conquer the city of Babylon, which was the center of the, I know this is deep, Babylon was the center of the Babylonian Empire. Wow. Um, but uh, they, they conquered that kingdom, and they are the first um, group from outside of Mesopotamia to rule over the Jews. And they're a very different group. 
um, Hebrew, Canaanite, Akkadian, uh, which is Babylonian, Assyrian, all of those, all of those languages. These are all they're related language. What's what's called the Semitic languages. They they're kind of similar languages. Um, the Persians speak the language that today is called Farsi, um, although uh, the Persian. They, they actually prefer that it be called Persian, not Farsi. But, um, but, the, uh, but that language, which is very com- complicated in Afghanistan, um, it's spoken. It's called Dari. Um, there's there's uh, different versions of it. It is one of the sacred languages of Islam. Um, it was the first language of Islam. It's the language, if you've ever heard of the poet Rumi, it's the language that Rumi wrote in. Um, it's a, a language that's still spoken today. Uh, and it dates uh, all the way back, um, probably about 1500 BC is the first appearance of this language. The, uh, the Persians are uh, not um, like the Canaanites or the Mesopotamians, where they ha- are polytheists, they have many gods. Uh, the Persians are um, sort of, I always throw that, they're sort of monotheists. Um, they believe in one god, the god, um, the creator god, Ahura Mazda. Um, and Ahura Mazda um, is the one god, but he has many lesser uh, deities. He has um, seven spirits. There are seven powers that, that he uses to control the world. Um, and he is responsible um, for goodness. Now, in the Persian religion, we tend to, or in our way of thinking, we tend to think of the world in terms of good and evil. Um, the Persian religion, what's called Zoroastrianism, all right. Um, the the Persian religion does not think of the world in terms of good and evil. It thinks of the world in terms of creation and destruction. Now they sound those sound like they're the same things, um, but Ahura Mazda is the creator, and in order to create in their mindset. Um, and this religion is still practiced today by a small group. Um, in, in Zoroastrianism, the idea is that Ahura Mazda creates. And as long as things are being created and extended, in fact, the spirits that serve him are called the extensions of immortality. Um, they're this idea that, that as long as things keep growing and keep being created, um, there is the, the universe is good. But there's a, a power... Um, what's called Angra Manyu, um, which is destruction. It breaks down. It destroys. It is disorder. It is chaos. And left to our own devices without um, their idea of holiness would be the idea of of spreading or prosperity. Um, Without that happening, destruction will take over. The world will fall apart. Angra is is very similar, actually, to the scientific principle of entropy, um, that systems break down. They don't maintain. So the point of a human ruler in the Persian world, the point of a human ruler um, is not moral good as much as it is the continued growth of creation. The continued movement of creation. Now, I, I recognize this is a weird way to view the world. It's very foreign to us um, because we live in a, a Western society thinks in terms of good and evil. That's how we operate. Um, these issues are very gray. 
a Persian king could order the genocide of hundreds of thousands of people to preserve order. And that was a good thing because it created, it extended the creative power of Ahura Mazda. Um, by, by, uh, by token, he could not forgive sin. He could not forgive uh, error or mistakes or breaches of the law. Even though he had the power to do it, sometimes he would not uh, grant clemency in the name of getting evil out of the way so creation can fill its space. A little bit of a strange world they were stepping into. And this is the, the kingdom, this is the world that Esther takes place in. Esther takes place in a city called Shusha, the citadel. Shusha is, uh, actually, Sus is the Hebrew word for horse, and they got it from the Persians. Um, it's the horse capital. Um, and Shusha, the citadel, is one of four capitals because the Persians were um, nomadic people. They were horsemen, and so they would travel around season by season to different, uh, to different uh, capitals. All right? And you would move every 90 days. The whole court would move uh, every 90 days. So with all that in mind and remembering that the Hebrews, the Jews, are, um, they were captured and they were taken into exile by the Babylonians. The Persians freed some of them to go back to Jerusalem. But many of them stayed in Babylonia and then eventually wound up in Susa and Persepolis and, the, and Babylon and Akkad, uh, Elam Akkad, the, the four capitals of the Persian Empire. Um, many of the Jews stayed behind. And the story of two of them is in the scriptures, Esther and Daniel. Um, and so we're looking at the book of Esther. We're looking at um, this, uh, this text and we're putting it in that world. So one other thing that I need to, to bring out about this when we read the book of Esther, and this is going to sound really, really weird, so stick with me for a second. Esther is written in the genre of comedy. Now, when we think comedy, we think fiction. Th that is not what we're dealing with here, all right? In fact, let's all be honest. Real life is often much funnier than fiction, all right? Um, now, and you say, well, it's a comedy. How could it possibly be a comedy? God wouldn't write a comedy. Really? I mean, he wrote a love song, Song of Solomon, Lamentations, which is a lament. Uh, some of the Psalms are, are downright blues songs. Might as well be played with a, a 16 bar E in E. Um, they, we have chronicles, we have laws, we have uh, narratives, we have um, poetry. They're all different genres in the, in the Hebrew scriptures. So why not use comedy? Now by comedy, I don't mean laugh out loud comedy. All right? I don't mean, ha ha ha, that was super funny. That's not what I'm talking about. But rather the use of irony to show the absurdity. Because comedy is really about the absurdity of life. Isn't it? You hear a stand-up comedian, if he just stands up there and says, I went to the store, I bought stuff, I went home. That's not funny. A stand-up comedian tells the absurd ideas, the strange things, the, the, uh, the weird things that happen in our life. And I think often we laugh out of coping of the reality of just how nuts our lives can be sometimes. 
So I wanted you to bear with me. We think of comedy, think of irony, think of think of real life writ large. All right, is really what we mean by that. So let's take a look at the Book of Esther, chapter one. Uh, this series is called Seven Feasts in Persia. The Book of Esther is actually structured around seven feasts, and so we're going to bounce through them and look at them. But in chapter one and verse one, now in the days of Ahasuerus. The same Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127, 127 provinces. Aren't you glad he explained which one? <laughs> now, I'm about to make your brain go kapupupa. Ahasuerus is the word Xerxes. Did you see the similarity? It's very obvious, isn't it? Let me show you how that happened. Um, up on the top is actually Xerxes' name in Old Persian. His name is Hushyarusha. Now you try saying Hush together. Those are not two sounds that fit very easily in our mouth. We like a vowel, something in between those consonants. The Hebrews were the same way, and so they added an A at the beginning, and they said A, Ha, Sh, We, Ro, Sh. All right? Ahashuerush. All right? By sticking the vowels in it, it made it easier for them to pronounce. I'm sure you're all very excited. The Greeks, however, said, forget that. We're just going to make something up. And they called him Xerxes. We think that the reason that they did this is that the, 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 Hebrew, the Greek letter for the H sound, all right, the, that second letter in Hebrew, or the top, that first letter in, in the, the old Babylonian, the, that sound in, Hebrew, in Greek looks like an X, um, and somehow something happened and they transposed it and they turned it into an actual X sound, all right, and so they called him Xerxes. But Ahasuerus, all right, is actually the Hebrew pronunciation of the name Xerxes, and this is why languages make no sense. All right, it's just a random arrangement of sounds. But this is uh, the this is Xerxes. Now that doesn't narrow anything down because there were three of them, um, so we don't know which one. And probably what this is is this is called a standard reference. Um, the Hebrews have a tendency to just use a name of one of the most prominent members of a class as a representation for all of them. Um, they do this with the Philistines. Uh, they refer to the kings of the Philistines are always called uh, Abimelech. Um, and uh, they do it with the word Pharaoh. They don't waste their time writing the names of Egyptian kings because they're all the same. They just write Pharaoh. Um, and Caesar is just a stand-in for all of the Caesars and all that stuff. This is a very common thing. So we don't know exactly when the setting of this is. Probably around 400 B.C. Um, so I know you're all excited about that linguistic stuff. I was just excited to get my computer to put old, old uh, Persian up on the screen, so you can, you can forget about all that anyway. Um, anyways, so in the days of Ahasuerus, who reigned from India, or Hindi, all right, the, the, the word is actually Hidu, um, and India means the place of the, the Hindu, um, the Hindi, the language of the Hindi, to Ethiopia, which is Cush, uh, which is the ancient name of Ethiopia. In verse 2, in those days, when King Ahasuerus um, sat on his royal throne in Shusha, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast. The word feast here means um, he poured out wine. 
That's right. You're about to see how he did it. For all of his officials and servants. I have to pause for a second. I'm just going to walk over here for a second and be a nerdy linguist. All right. Here's the deal with translating Esther. All right. Esther is really, really hard to translate. So if I correct the English Standard Version, which is what I'm reading, if I correct it and say that's not the greatest translation, it's not a knock on the Bible. It's a, it's a fact that this language is, the language of Esther is really hard. It's a fusion of late uh, biblical Hebrew and old Persian, and they seem to be doing what's called code switching, just going back and forth between the two grammars and the, la- and the, and the vocabulary with absolutely no intention of explaining what they're doing. So there's this mixing of Persian words and Hebrew words that is awful to try to translate. Okay, so I'm going to come back here. So when we see the word officials, the Hebrew word is sar. All right, now normally sar is pronounced in, or it's translated as prince. Um, Now prince is a very Western idea, but the idea is that it's somebody, it's a noble, it's somebody who serves the king. Um, In Hebrew, when you want to have a female of that rank, we say sarah. Now, that's not the same as the name Sarah. Um, Sarah, That's a different word, but Sarah, you put ah at the end of it. If you want to make it plural, it's Sarim. And if you're plural females, it's Sarot. You guys are all really concerned about that, I know. But I want to throw this out there. The reason is there's wordplay on this name. So when we read about the officials, that's Sar. Um, And when we read about the servants, they never get mentioned again, so they don't matter. Um, in the next line, the army of Persia, literally the host, everybody that was gathered of Persia and Media, and the nobles, that's Sar again, um, and the governors of the provinces in Hebrew, these are, or in uh, old Persian, these are called the satrap, um, the, the rulers of the provinces, sub-kings or vi- vicarious kings, were before him. And while he, showed, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 100 day, 180 days, and when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Shusha the citadel, both great and small, a feast, a drinking party, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Now, obviously, he did not pull all of the officials of his empire into the capital for half a year. Um, This seems to indicate that this feast was supposed to be held twice a year, every 180 days. Um, And it was going to be a seven-day feast, probably held um, in the fall and in the late spring. All right. Um, And and the idea was, everybody's going to come and look at me and see how awesome I am. And he decorates the garden in verse 6. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings. So I want you to keep track of the colors here. We've got white and we've got violet, um, which is in the blue-purple blue, uh, uh, family. Uh, hangings fastened with corns, cords of fine linen. Now, what color is linen? White. And purple... All right, same color, blue, purple, all right, two silver rods and marble pillars, all right, um, and this marble um, is a white marble, couches of gold sil- and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry. Do you guys know what color porphyry is? All right, it's purple, all right, um, purple marble. Marble, which is white, mother of pearl, which is white, and precious stones, which are many other colors. But I'm willing to guess that he probably picked stones that were mostly blue and purple. You noticing a theme? All right. His colors seem to be bluish, purplish, and white. 
and he's draping everything in these colors so that you can see every all my glory and all my power verse 7 now this is amazing at a drinking party drinks were served um, in golden vessels vessels of different kind and the the king's wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king in other words the king is paying for all of the drinking and the drinking was according to this edict there is no compulsion now now that that word edict i'm going to come back to this this is the word data all right not data as in star trek all right um, data, D, D long A, T A. It's an old Persian word. Um, it is the goodness of the creation of Ahura Mazda. When Ahura Mazda is involved and creation and the immortality is spread through the seven spirits, that is data. And the king's commands, the purpose of the king's commands and orders are to further the order of Ahura Mazda, to further the organizing of the world along the principle of the creator God. And his order about the drinking is, all bets are off, boys and girls. For seven days there are no rules. No one's going to stop you from drinking as much as you can. Par T. You get the idea that Xerxes in this story, Ahasuerus, is kind of a frat boy. This is what he's doing. He's throwing a big old party. There is no compulsion. All right? For the king had given orders to all the staff. He had given them words, his, his actual word, or he's spoken to them, to all the staff of his palace. And, and the Hebrew idiom here is whatever every man, man to man to man, whatever they feel like doing, every man can just do whatever he wants. Give it over to the party. And Queen Vashti um, also gave a feast, a drinking party, for the women in the, and this is translated as palace, it's actually the king's house, the house of the king that belonged to King Ahasuerus or Xerxes. So there's one feast going on. And the big feast that's going on is Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, he says, all right, boys, drinking party, twice a year we're going to get together and we are going to celebrate how awesome I am. And what we're going to do is we're just going to go nuts for seven days, we're just going to lose ourselves doing whatever we feel like doing. And the Persians, what, what they did was Persian kings were, were polygynists, which means they, were, they married many women. Um, the word haram, uh, harem, that we, we talk about, you know, oh, he's got a harem of women, you know, that they all hidden away. You know how it is in all the old movies. There's this group of women in the secret place, and they're all wearing veils and belly dancing and all that stuff. Um, that's actually a Persian word. The Persian king had a separate house built for all of his wives, and he would cycle them through. But he always had one chief wife, all right? Now, the Hebrew, we're switching back and forth here. There's a lot of code switching on. Um, she actually gets, the queen is actually the female form of the Hebrew word for king, all right? So king is melech, queen is melecha. Now, I'm not going to get into it, but believe it or not, king and queen in English are the same word, all right? Um, just has to do, the king and queen, it just has to do with how you get the k sound. Write it down. You'll see how it works. Um, but the Queen Vashti, um, she gives a feast for the women of the house. So while this party is going on, all the boys are out in the courtyard and they are drinking and going nuts. 
the queen has a second feast in her home, in her domain, her presence. Now, there's all kinds of conjecture about what's going on, that she's protecting the women from the crazy men who are doing whatever they want to do. That may be the case. Um, it may just be that she doesn't want to compete with the, the situation, whatever's going on. But on the seventh day, so at the end of the feast, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, that's always a good time to make a choice, make a decision, he commanded those seven guys, Mehuma, Bistha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abaktha, Zethar, Carcass, Carcass, that's a great name, right? All right, again, these are Hebrew translations of Persian words. We don't know their exact names. The seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes, that's Sar, the Sarim, her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now, what is he doing here? He has been showing for seven days, showing everybody the glory and power and majesty of his accomplishments. Look at Ahura Mazda has created this. We are this. We have all this abundance. He has commanded us to, we can drink as much as we want. We won't run out. Let's have this big party. And the crowning achievement, my crowning achievement, the thing I want everybody to see is my queen. I want, I want her to put on a royal, ro- royal crown. I want her to come out of the house. I want everybody to see how amazing she is. Now, Persian queens traveled with their husbands often. They would go into battle with them even. All right? Um, and they would wear armor, and they, they were known. Usually they were diplomatic marriages. Normally these women were um, the daughters of other kings or, or possibly even sovereigns of their own states who have been married into the Persian uh, thing. They're usually very, very powerful women. Many of the, many of the Persian queens that we know of, they, they were very influential. But in verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, all right, his word delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Look at how quickly his mood changes. In verse 10, he's merry with wine. And now he's become enraged and his anger burned with him. Seems like the kind of guy you want to be perpetuating order. The king said to the wise men, to the wise, and this, um, this is probably the magi, the advisors of the Persian king. When we read in, in uh, Matthew about the wise men, that's the magi, they're Persian wise men. They're, um, they're astrologers is what they are, who knew the times, for this was the king's uh, data, data, procedure, command toward all who were versed in law and judgment. And the men next to him were being, these, these are his closest advisors, Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Memukan. The seven princes, Sar, of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. Now, I'm going to get to what's going on, but I want you to understand what's, what's going on. Ahura Mazda, the god, he has seven spirits that go out and do his will. The Persian king, going all the way back to Darius the Great, had seven men who were his chief uh, his chief representatives, and that's what these seven guys are. Their job is to take whatever the king says and make it happen. He gives the data, data, all right, and they go and they do whatever is required in order to make that happen. 
And so he says to them in verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. The Memukan said in the presence of the king before the face of the king, the Hebrew idiom is actually face to face, in the presence of the king and the sarim, the, the princes, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, literally to... Mm-hmm. All right. Um, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she did not come. Now, he's not talking about all the married couples in the empire. He's talking about the, the, the officials, the sarim, the, the princes, all right, the, the rulers, the nobles. He's saying, look, if things start to break down. Now, now in, uh, in the, their religion, data is, or data is, the, is Ahura Mazda's creative act. The opposite of that is called drauga. And drauga is the destruction, the breakdown, the, the imbalance of the world. And they say to him, look, if you allow your queen to not come when you command her. You are introducing imbalance and confusion and chaos into our homes. You are you're going to make the empire fall apart because the purpose of a king is to create order and you're allowing chaos. You're allowing disorder. You notice that at no point do they ever say, maybe in your drunken fervor you shouldn't have asked the most beautiful woman in the kingdom to come to your party. He cannot make a mistake. The king never makes a mistake. Now this is part of the comedic character of the king. The irony of a king who is not supposed to be able to make mistakes, who literally does nothing but make mistakes. Through the whole narrative, he will make the wrong decision at almost every point. And when he makes the right one, it's by accident. If it please the king, he says, this very day, verse verse, uh, uh, 18, this very day, the noble women, the Sarah, the Sarot, the, the, the wives of the the, the rulers of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior, literally her path, the, the Hebrew word is darak, um, her way, her road, will say the same to all the kings sar. All right, so uh, the queen says this, Melakah says this to Melak. Well, then Sarah is going to say this to sar, to sar. If the queen can say it to the king, then the official noble's wife can say it to the noble because that will be the new way the universe will work. Isn't it amazing how threatened they are by women? I won't even get into what's unhealthy about their behavior here. And they will say the same things, and there will be contempt, and there will be wrath in plenty. Talk about irony. Who's the angry one? The king! Vashti's not angry. She's not showing contempt. The king is angry. The king is showing contempt. If it please the king, verse 19, let a royal order, data, 
Go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. This was a character of Data. Once a king made a law, it could not be reversed. That Vashti is never again to be face to face or to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position, her, her dignity, her gravitas to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all the women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king, who, by the way, is drunk and angry. And the king said, did as Memukan proposed. He sent letters, scrolls, sepharim. The Hebrew word for letter or book is sefer sent letters to all the royal provinces, to all the satraps, to every province in his own script, written in Akkadian and Hebrew and every language that, that the Persians dominated, to every province in its own script, to every people in its own language. This is a very common thing the Persians would do. All right, Whenever they wrote a law, they would make sure it was translated into languages everybody could understand, that every man be master in his own house and speak according to the language of his people. Uh, Xerxes is simultaneously the most powerful person in the world and completely powerless to control the simplest thing, his own will. He is not in control. His advisors are in control. My shoe is untied. Speaking of not being in control, he is, he is acting on the surface. The irony of the story that the person whose purpose is to bring the kingdom into alignment with the will of their God is in complete chaos. And observing this glory without actual power. There's an irony for the powerless Jews who are suppressed by these Persians, controlled, suborned. They look at all the power that Xerxes has, that Ahasuerus has, and it really amounts to nothing. It really has no substance Now, the strange thing about this is just how prominent this king will be in the narrative while God, who never appears, the true God, is completely in control of the situation. The one who has all the power in the story is actually powerless. And the one who never appears is actually in charge. This first feast shows us a world not unlike our own. A world full of power dynamics. A world full of controls and authorities. A world full of people who want to provide direction to everybody around them, but simultaneously lack any actual direction. We live in a world where 
we are told repeatedly to make our own decisions, to live independently, to do our own thing, while simultaneously being manipulated by the people who are saying that into doing what they want us to do for their own benefit. And this is not a new thing. We grouse and complain about the modern world and the temptations and the struggles of the modern world. And maybe the scale and the rapidity of what we deal with is bigger. But the reality is sin is sin. People are people. And power-hungry people are power-hungry people. This first feast gives us a snapshot of the world as it really is. Superficially powerful. Superficially authoritative superficially setting the rules for everybody's conduct superficially telling us this is how the world works and yet all it takes is one person to defy the order to send it into chaos all it takes is one woman who just doesn't want to be treated like she's some piece of jewelry on her husband's neck. One woman who has the wisdom and the discernment to not do what would bring shame to her. I won't even get into what he intends to do with her when she comes into his presence in this party. I know too much about the Persians to share those details. As we dive deeper into this book, we get to see, we get a glimpse into what it means to live as the powerless in the world of the powerful and yet see God at work. We get to live in the world where someone else has the power of life and death. Where defying the authorities can end your life, your career, your reputation, your everything. And yet, it is only in defying that authority that Esther eventually will save her people. And we get a hint of that with this first queen. I'm going to close with this just so you know. The first time I heard somebody preach from this passage, and if any of you have ever heard this, I'm just going to tell you right up front, it's, it's wrong. First time I heard this, the sermon that was preached was that Vashti was in sin for not submitting to her husband. That, that if she had submitted to her husband and just done what he had told her to do, she would have maintained her place and her power and her position as queen. And then, and, but but the, the book of Esther is actually about submission. Not based on what I know about the Persians, it's not. This is a book about living in a world where you seem to not be in control, but in reality are following the one who is sovereign over everything. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about all of the ironies and the the setups that occur in this book. And again, this is not a laugh out loud comedy. This is, this is comedy being used as a genre to teach us about uh, the realities of our world and then to show us the hope we have in our God. 
And so over the next few weeks, we're going to explore this. Can I share with you the ultimate irony of this book? And I'm going to close. When Hadassah, that's Esther's name, is renamed Esther, do you know what Esther means? Esther is the name Ishtar. It's a, it's a Babylonian goddess. Um, she gets named after a false god. That, by the way, happens to all the Jews in the society. Daniel's name is uh, Belteshazzar, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you've ever heard those names, those are, those are, named, those are the names that were given to Jewish boys um, that have the names of the, the Mesopotamian gods in them. The ultimate irony is that the salvation of the people of Israel will ultimately come through the debased behavior of the Persians. That those who think they have power wind up not having power and those who think that are powerless are used by the powerful one to bring salvation. And we as the church are not in charge. We don't have power in our world. We sometimes think we do. We sometimes demand that people conform to us because we are Christians, darn it. You should listen to us. We don't have power. But that doesn't mean that the one we serve lacks power. Would you join me in a word of prayer? As we dive into a book that honestly can be really frustrating at times, God, help us to see your face when we're face to face with the kings of this world. Help us to be the voice, not of reason, but of faith and truth. In a world that has so many voices based on so many authorities derived entirely from human power over others. Help us to seek you above all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My brothers and sisters, go in peace.